Lord, first of all, this morning, we want to lift up a, uh, another church in this community. I want to pray for family fellowship, and I want to pray for their uh, hearts this morning, recognizing they've lost a family member, uh, Matt Virgil. Lord, we pray for the Virgil family, and we pray that they are surrounded by a people that they are part of, that they are known by, and that they know they can speak words of encouragement, hope, and comfort to them right now. Lord, we pray for Matt's wife and uh, family that they somehow are enjoying you maybe, um, maybe more than ever in this time of sorrow. Lord, we pray for this church. Pray, pray for uh, Paul Blue and for his family, Lord. I pray that Paul has been wrecked by the word, that he is vexed over rich truth, that he is bearing many sorrows because he's seeing much truth. And um, pray that he's encouraged uh, by you. And pray that it's gushing over onto a people. Pray that it's gushing over onto his family. I pray that his marriage is blessed and rich. I pray that his primary ministry is to his wife. And that all will see the gospel on display by how he treats his wife and how he loves her. Lord, also this morning I want to pray for this people. I pray that this morning that we can enjoy life. We can enjoy the singular source of life. And that we can see in Christ we have a higher view of him and a more accurate view of ourselves. And that we are more desperate and more needy. And um, I pray that we'll be quick to listen and quick to receive your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you know, there's something else I want to pray. Let me, let me just pray again. Lord, also uh, this morning, recognizing the substance of this message and what it's doing, what we're exposing Lord, I see a clear, clear picture of the gospel, and I pray for those that may not know you, those that may just know of you, or may not even know of you at all, that they can see life in Christ alone, and that they can respond in repentance and faith. I pray that the eyes of their hearts will be opened. Lord, I pray that your kingdom will be grown in these next few minutes in the hearts of man. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Let me share something. Go ahead and turn to John 14. As you're, sharing, or as you're turning there, I want to share something with you. <clears throat> if you're here for the first time or you're here for the first of a few times, or this is a good reminder for those who are here often, even, of why and how we approach the Word. There are a couple different ways you can approach the Word. Well, there's three. If you don't approach it at all, that's really avoiding it. But another way that you can approach the word is you can approach it when you have a need. And that's very appropriate. Many of you are hopefully owning the fact that you're shepherding your family, men especially, but in those families where men may not be there, men may not be believing, uh, or maybe a single mom, a mom is a functional shepherd. Hopefully you're owning the fact that if you have a crisis or an issue or some event in your life, you can go to this word and find answers. That's a great way to handle the word. And it's really in some ways kind of a topical treatment of the word. Some preachers preach week by week topically. And I want to say there's nothing wrong with that. We will do that periodically. But most of the time what we do though is what we're doing this morning. We're going to the next verse. Really, you need to recognize that's very different from having a question or an issue and going to the word in some ways as a consumer I don't want to reduce it to consumerism, but you're going to the Word and to God as like the great sage that's going to give you insight into your great problem that you're dealing with. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But great 
is to go to the Word and let the Word develop both your questions and your answers. What we've done in the last six years, we've been in John for six years, not exclusively, but primarily. And God has shown us in six years that he, he does a good job of telling us what we need to be concerned with. Oftentimes, we come in here with problems and things on our hearts, and we leave realizing that <laughs> those problems are really pretty small compared to the bigger problem of believing or the bigger problem of worship and wonder and faith. And this word, when you come that way, when you come letting it give you the, an- the questions and the answers, it's approached more as a worshiper than a consumer. And that's what we're doing this morning. It's a worshiper sermon. If you're a consumer, you're going to be bored. If you're a worshiper, then we're going to die in together. Okay, John chapter 14. Let me give you a little bit of context before I start reading. John chapter 14 is sort of the last words from Christ before he goes to the cross. He's hours away from being nailed to the cross. Hours away from being crucified, murdered brutally in front of his friends that he's followed or that have followed him. These guys have left everything to follow him. They've been following him for three years. They left their tax collector's booths. They left, left their boats, their versions of a work truck or a cubicle. They left their family. They left their friends. They left everything. Think about how many friends you're connected to and how many family members. Think about how many friends you have in Facebook. Think about walking away from every single one of them to follow somebody. That's what these dudes did. And he's in the final hours talking with them. And imagine if someone you walked with for a period of time that you were that close to had a few hours left and they knew it. And they're looking at you right in the eyeball and they're giving you some last words. That's what we're in right now. That's why our hearts should race in these last few hours. Every time we come back and confront or are confronted by this word. In John chapter 14, let's go there. Let not your hearts be troubled. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. It sounds like a suggestion, but it's a command. Jesus is speaking to these guys who are getting troubled now. They're realizing that Jesus is saying, I'm going to a place you can't go. Like, Wait a second. We followed you for three years. What are you talking about? I'm going somewhere you can't follow. And the reason he's saying that is because he's going to a place to pay a price that they could not pay. They are unqualified. He's going to the cross. I'm going to prepare a place for you is what he's saying, a place that you can't prepare on your own. And he's saying, thou shalt not let your heart stay troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, a picture of expanse, a picture of space. He can accommodate all of his kids, all of his children. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to the eternal, ultimate carrot that is myself. Now, many of us may have loved ones who've gone on before us that we trust and hope are with the Lord, and there's nothing wrong with being anxious to see them. But let me tell you something. If that's all heaven is for you, you will not see them. You hear that? If all heaven is for you is seeing your loved ones, you'll not see them. The eternal, ultimate, rich, beautiful carrot that should move us from day to day is that we'll see our Lord. I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to take you again to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And then Thomas, a guy that's like so many of y'all, I feel like I identify with Thomas. He's often presented as this goober, the doubtful goober. But I'm seeing Thomas as the guy that's saying, uh, Jesus, I've got a question. 
I'm listening to you, and I'm thankful that Thomas had the guts to ask this question where he says, Lord, we do not know where you're even going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered Thomas with these words that we've been bathing in these last few weeks. He said, I am the way, Thomas. I am the truth, Thomas. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We've been bathing in that these last few weeks. A few weeks ago, we considered that he is the way. That little bitty word in front of way, the, is important. It's called the definite article. And it means if it said a way, or if the was not there, then it might imply that the sincere Buddhist would go to God. It might imply that the sincere Muslim might yet see God's face someday. But when he says, I am the way, what he's saying is, is this narrow, hard way that few find is one Jesus wide. It's not Jesus plus a little bit of cushion for the sincere other believer or the sincere believer in some other faith. There's no cushion and extra space for those who might be good people. It is one Jesus wide. No one is righteous. No, not one. There is no space for one that thinks he can earn it. This way is the way, and Jesus is that way. It's one Jesus wide. And also he said, I am the truth. We considered this a few weeks ago, that he is ultimate reality. In a world that hates black and white, in a world that hates the thought of notion of absolute truth, in a world where this is common, this thought, well, what's true today may not be true tomorrow. Or what's true to me may not be true to you. And as long as our truths don't collide, as long as we don't step on each other's toes, that's cool. That's called tolerance. And what we considered that Jesus made the pronouncement and the claim to say, I am the truth. Hours before they would see him nailed to a cross, he says, I am the truth. They could possibly think, well, looks like Pilate and Rome are the truth. A few hours later, as they watch him nailed to a cross. But he prepares them right up front and say, no, I'm ultimate reality. You think what's unfolding in front of your eyes is ultimate reality as you see me nailed to a cross. And what you don't know is part of a bigger plan. And what you don't know is I'm going to leave a tomb especially vacant on Sunday morning. He is ultimate reality. What we considered is, is our ultimate reality going to be the doctor's report? that may or may not be true, that God may or may not intervene in? Are we going to consider the doctor's report as our ultimate reality? Are we going to consider that all things work together for good for those who love him? All things, even the prognosis from the doctor. Are we going to consider our ultimate reality to be our checking account, our checking statement? Are we going to consider that his ultimate reality is that God works all things according to the kind intention of his own will? We can consider that God is the ultimate reality. Those who are his are walking by faith, not by what we see. What we see we think is the reality. The bigger reality is this faith journey that we're on and this ultimate reality that is Christ. That's ultimate. Then today, we're going to consider the life. We're going to examine the claim that he makes of being the life. So we're going to go to the beginning. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. (laughs) 
What I want to establish, first of all, is God as life maker and God as life giver. And we'll come back to Jesus. We're not leaving Jesus if we're talking about God, but I want you to follow me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, pay attention to what he says. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in chapter 2, verse 7. Here's what it looks like when that event actually takes place. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. I want to caution you against treating this first few chapters of Genesis as allegorical or as kind of some over weird expanse of time and trying to synthesize it with other things that you may consider as truth. You need to consider this is absolute truth and trust that when he says that God made man, that he made a man named Adam. A man, a singular man. And that this man, as this describes right here, was just a big lump of clay. Now, it was a nice looking lump of clay. It wasn't just a pile It was a man laying there that looked like a man, but yet it was still just a lump of clay until he hunkered over it. And he, as the author of life, breathes life into his nostrils. And this former lump of clay goes, and life begins. That came from from God. He's the one that created it. He's the one that gave life to it. Now look at chapter 6, verse 11. We don't know how many years later this was. This is the story of the flood. But pay attention to some of the things that this phrase that we've looked at already, that God breathed life into the nostrils of man. And pay attention in chapter 6, verse 11. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now look down at verse 17. God says, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all this corrupt flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Remember that breath of life? You remember where it came from? It came from this God that breathed life into man. This God who gave birth to life, this God who created life, is about to take life away and destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life that I gave it under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And look at chapter 7, verse 22. Let's see what happens. Sure enough, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. God is the author of life. He can give it. And you know what else he can do? He can take it away. Here's another picture on the same page since we're there. Chapter 9, verse 5. This is after the flood, after the water subsides. God makes a covenant with Noah. In chapter 9, verse 5, he says to Noah, he makes this promise. And for your life, blood, Noah, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. God basically says, hey, I created it. And I can take it away when I want. And anybody that tries to take it away or tamper with it in my place, I will reckon with. And why can he do that? Because he owns it. Because he created it. 
some of the staff and some of these other jokers are always picking at me about making up words. So I told them, I said, you know what? I'm going to start copywriting my words. So whenever you start hearing these big wigs, you know, and they're throwing out words like enjoyify as a word for glorify, enjoyifying God, it's a good word. So what I'm doing whenever they joke me about it, I'm putting a little circle C behind it. It's just a spoken copyright. Circle C, enjoyify, circle C. I'll just throw it out there. The picture of copyright is the picture of ownership. I made that word up. That's my word. Somebody else might use it, but it's only because they borrowed it from me. That picture of copyright is a great picture for life. Let's consider that God is the author of life, and he put a big circle C behind it. He owns it. He can take it away, and he can reckon with those who tamper with it or who take it in his place. Now, turn to John chapter 5. We've established that God owns life. He's got the circle C behind it. Let's look at John chapter 5. Look in verse 26. This is such an important passage. This is a transition to where I'm going to go in these next few minutes. It's kind of a medley of life in Jesus. But this is the transition. Okay? John chapter 5. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, okay, you saw authorship. You saw that he created it. You saw that he can take it away. You saw that he will reckon with anybody that tampers with it or takes it away without his permission. He's got the circle C around it. You see that? As the Father has the circle C of life, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. As the Father has the copyright, now he's passed the copyright to the Son. That's an important passage. It's an important transition. Let's look and see if that's true. I'm going to show you the medley. You can follow along with me if you want, or you can just listen to this medley of passages just in John on life in Christ. John 3.16, you probably don't even need to turn there. For God so loved the world, or better translated, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life for those who are believing in Christ. John chapter 5, verse 40. I'm going to start in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He's speaking to unbelieving Jews and Pharisees. You search the scriptures and you have really deified the scriptures. You are worshiping the words themselves instead of who they expose. You search those scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. There is life for those who come to Christ. John chapter 6, verse 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this living bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Those who eat living bread live forever. And that bread is Christ. There are no other life-giving meals. Period. A few verses later, verse 53, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds, that word in the original language could be translated munches, gnaws, chews. Whoever munches and chews and gnaws and feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. He is the only life meal. There are no other options. John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. While Satan lies and steals, Christ came that you may have life that you may have it extra strength, that you may have it supersized, that you may have it XL. He comes that you may have life and have it to the fullest. And then a few verses later in chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them what? I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He gives life, eternal life, to his sheep. It's a gift given only by him. You cannot find it anywhere else. You can't purchase it. You can't earn it. You can't work around it. He is the only source of that life because he has the circle C. He has the copyright on it. And then in chapter 11, he proves all these claims that he's made. You know the story. You may remember that we as a church spent months camping out in John chapter 11 where we got to know Mary and Martha and a dead man named Lazarus, a man that had been dead and decaying for four days, a man whom Jesus loved, a man whom Jesus let die if you watch how the chapter unfolds. And Jesus shows up to prove to, to prove exactly what he told Mary and Martha. To prove where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. To prove that this dead man is about to have life in me. He's going to prove that truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. This is in verse 5, or chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's about to illustrate that. When he takes a man who's been dead and decaying for four, year, four days with rigor mortis completely set in, heart, stone, cold, eyes just glazed over, dead, cold. Yeah, I bet he stunk. Have you ever had a, a, a cast, a cast on for a few weeks where you like, you stick your nose down there and you go, whoo, man, that's nasty. Imagine your whole body smelling like that for four days. Inside and out. And Jesus has a visual aid of what he's claimed so far. Speaks to Lazarus. He says, Lazarus. And it's a good thing he called him by name or that graveyard would have emptied. Because the author of life, the one with the copyright, says, Lazarus, come forth. And a man who must have needed a bath really bad came easing out of that grave. Needing his grave cloths removed. Because there is life in him. Turn to John chapter 1 verse 4. John chapter 1 is sort of like a legend to the map of John. 
It's sort of like a table of contents, except it's just not as tidy. John chapter 1, verse 4, he summarizes life. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. See, it's not just life through him. It's not just life by him, but it is life actually in him. If the copyright that is owned by the Father is given to the Son, if life that is owned by the Father is given to the Son, then only He is able to give it to the others. That's why you can't find it anywhere else. And that's why He is able to claim and say, I am the life. Thomas, you can't get it anywhere else. I am the only source of life. So let me tell you something. Looking for life anywhere else is folly. Looking for life anywhere else is a waste of time, a ridiculous waste of time. It's sort of like that idol worshiper that we considered a few weeks ago that plants a seed for a big tree. It's not a big tree yet, but he nurtures it, waters it, and cares for it over the years. And when the tree is mature, he gets his chainsaw. And he goes out into the woods and it's time to harvest that beautiful tree that he's cared for. And he cuts it down. And with some of the wood, he cuts and makes firewood. And he keeps himself warm by that wood. With some of the wood, he cooks his food. And he eats that food, that warm food. And then with some of that wood, he carves an idol and hunkers down to worship it. How ridiculous. And What we found a few weeks ago is that in Psalms, in what that man does, when he he forms this idol, he makes this idol, and he bows to worship it, he becomes like it. He carves a little mouth in this idol and little eyes and little ears, but it's wood, so it doesn't talk or see or hear. And the funny thing is, the idol worshiper becomes like the idol. He's got a mouth, and he's saying a bunch of stuff, but he's not saying anything of substance. He's got no truth to offer. He's got eyes, but he can't see which way to go. He's got ears, but he really can't hear. He becomes a counterfeit human because he's worshiping a counterfeit God. And the reality is the life that he thinks he has is a counterfeit life. It's a fakie. It's not even real. It's like pseudo-life. It's like a fake life with fake joy and fake hope and fake purpose and fake meaning. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And he is encouraging troubled and confused hearts with something static, something true, something solid that's like an anchor. And those are those realities about Jesus. What I want to do in these next few minutes is I want to have three consider, enjoy or for us to gnaw on, munch on, three considerations about him being the life. I'll tell you what they are, so if you're making a little outline, you can kind of keep that in your notes. The first is life in him versus life without. Is it really real life versus counterfeit? Is it really a fake life apart from him? The second thing we're going to consider is the irony of life in death. And the third thing we're going to consider is the responsibility of the living to the dying. Let's go to our first thing. Life in him versus life without. Is it really real life 
versus counterfeit life. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I don't know if there's a passage of Scripture that captures the gospel as beautifully and concisely as Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. I realize how often I go there because it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He's writing to mostly Gentile believers, but there are some Jews in there, and he's about to refer to the Jews, but he's initially speaking to the Gentile believers. Listen to what he says. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we, being the Jews, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let me show you what life without Christ is like. It's like this passage so beautifully exposes right here where he says you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but then he uses words that don't look like death. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were walking according to the course of this world. Walking? The dead are walking. And then he says, they're following the course of this world. Following? Then he says, they're following the prince of the power of the air. Following again? And then speaking of the Jews, he said, we once also once lived according to the passions of our flesh. So he's speaking about dead people who are walking, following, living. And then he says, we were living while we were carrying out the desires of the body and mind. So we're dead while we're walking, following, following, living, and carrying out the desires. And the reason we're dead is because all the while we are children of wrath. That doesn't mean we are a bunch of mean little kids. Rawr, mean, I see my wrath. That's not what that's saying. That's saying they're children of wrath because they are due the wrath from a living God. Sinful humanity is due the wrath of a living God because he's holy and man is not. We've gotten crossways with our creator and that's why they're dead while they're walking and dead while they're following, dead while they're living, living dead while they're carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Racking my brain these last few weeks to consider an illustration that we could get our head around for what this looks like. How someone can be dead while walking and following and carrying out and even living. In her time, the Titanic surpassed all other ships in luxury. It was the picture of opulence and extravagance. The ship had an onboard swimming pool that was new in that day. The ship had a gymnasium, a Turkish bath. It had libraries in both the first class and the second class living areas. It even had a squash court. The first class rooms on the Titanic were adorned with ornate wood paneling and expensive furniture. And where these guys dined is at the Cafe Parisien. They ate the finest of cuisine under a sunlit veranda on the Titanic. The ship used some of the most advanced technology available in its time and was staffed by an experienced crew. But on the night of 14 April 1912, only four days into its maiden voyage, 
The RMS Titanic hit an iceberg and sank the next morning. The supposedly unsinkable proved otherwise, and 1,517 people died. Imagine what those first four days of the Titanic life must have been like. Under the veranda, on the dance floor, in the Turkish bath. <laughs> We're living large on the Titanic, dining on the finest cuisine, dancing to the finest stringed instruments, live instruments, live music. Sunning on the expansive decks, chatting with friends all the while not knowing this is the supposedly unsinkable was days and hours from resting on the ocean floor. When I consider those on the Titanic, at least the illustration of what that must have been like, I'm not speaking about the spiritual condition of all people on the Titanic, but take in the illustration and consider these guys were like those guys in Noah's day that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24. He said they're eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Meanwhile, the cumulus clouds are forming. You know those big old tall clouds that you have to fly around? Like you better not even venture through because they'll rock your world. And they're dancing and giving in marriage while the clouds form because they are by nature children of wrath. They're unaware until the flood came and it swept them away. This ship is a picture of life apart from Christ. The rain clouds are forming while they dance. The iceberg is hardening while they tan and while they dine under the veranda. The dance music is blaring. The cuisine is cooking, but death is imminent. Life apart from Christ is no life at all because it is imminent death. It's a party on the Titanic because life apart from Christ is by nature children of wrath. It'd be pretty amazing not being a passenger on the Titanic. Some life on hard ground wouldn't be that bad in contrast. Just to not bear the wrath of God would be a great relief and a great, amazing, unspeakable gift. But here's what life in Christ is like. John 10, 10, Jesus said, we read it, read it earlier, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Not just getting you off the ship into the slums, but actually getting you to even a better place, a serious life, full-on life, magnum life, extra strength life. Let's look in there at Ephesians chapter 2. Continue on in verse 4. Remember the first three verses are life on the Titanic. Let's see what happens in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, swoops on into the Titanic because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, because that ship is going to sink. This God made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you've been saved. He's picked us up off the Titanic and he's planted us on hard ground. And let's see what kind of ground he planted us on. He raised us up together with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The crazy mystery of this life in Christ is that it's not just not hell. It's not just not Titanic, but it's actually opulence. 
It's actually true luxury. It's actually true riches. And he says it right here. He's done all this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. While it would be amazing to be transported off of the Titanic, life in Christ is better than just sparing you from God's wrath. Life in Christ is better than just not going to hell. Life in Christ is rich. Christy and I, this fall, this last fall, we had a chance to go to North Carolina. And in the hills of North Carolina, there's a mansion there. It's called Biltmore. Christy and I, were going to tour it, but we found out it was like $35 just to drive onto the grounds. And we're like, nah. We actually got closer to the building about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. We were married then, early married life, living in South Carolina. And we actually drove up there. We're going to tour the Biltmore. It's around Christmas time. And the line to get into the Biltmore must have been a quarter mile long. And I had to go to the bathroom. And there were no outhouses or anything. So we actually saw it from afar. And now I'm like, hey, babe, let's go. I got to go to the bathroom. So we've never been in the Biltmore. But we've driven the grounds. And we've looked at the Biltmore from the outside, and it's pretty amazing. The Biltmore was built by the Vanderbilt family. The Vanderbilt family was the richest family in the U.S. in the 1800s. The guy that kind of started the money-making was a guy named Cornelius. He made millions in the railroad and shipping industry. And his family built some pretty amazing houses, mansions, places to live. The breakers they built in Newport, Rhode Island. They built a place called Hyde Park. In New York. And then George Washington Vanderbilt II built the Biltmore between the 1880s and the 1890s. It took a period of time to build it. As I'm thinking of an illustration for what life is like in Christ, I'm looking at the Vanderbilts and I'm imagining what it would be like to be little Cornelius Jr. or Cornelius II walking around the Biltmore, getting on a horse their version of a three-wheeler or four-wheeler, and they're out riding over the 8,000 acres of the most amazing property you've ever seen. Imagine what life would be like for Cornelius as he's sleeping in and dining in and fellowshipping this in this amazing mansion. That that's a great picture of what life is like in Christ, that we are in this amazing Biltmore mansion of grace. And it's inhabited by a bunch of adoptees, a bunch of people that used to be on the Titanic. But now we're walking around this Biltmore mansion of grace and we're going, man, isn't grace amazing? Isn't the Lord of this mansion awesome for taking us from the Titanic and not just planting us on dry ground, but planting us on amazing ground in the Biltmore mansion of grace? The picture of life in Christ is the picture of a bunch of people walking around with mouths ajar saying, can you believe this place? Can you believe this God of this mansion? Can you believe what we were spared from? And can you believe like little Cornelius, who doesn't even know it, he's just scratching the surface of the riches that he, that he will inherit. He's eating at the table of the finest food he'll ever eat, anybody could ever eat. He's wearing the finest clothes. And us as followers of Christ are wearing the finest linen washed by the blood of Jesus. We're living in this mansion of grace. We are eating the finest fare. Living in this mansion of grace. I remember when I was a kid seeing a 
a kid, you know, kids identify with other kids and seeing kids of royalty and looking at them going, dude, I want a three-wheeler and we had no money to get it. You can get whatever you want. You're really living. And I'm looking at this illustration of this mansion of grace that the people of God are living in and I'm going, that's really living. That's real life. That's just not non-hell life. That's just not non-Titanic life. This is real opulence. This is real luxury. This is a real inheritance. But God being rich in mercy like the Vanderbilts, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were living on the Titanic, he made us alive together with Christ. And he didn't just plant us on hard ground, but he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places with the victor. And he did that so in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He did that so everybody would drive by the Biltmore and go, wow. Look at that grace. Look at those a bunch of knucklehead adoptees living there. That's what the gospel should look like to the world. As we walk around with mouths ajar. Life with him is real Vanderbilt life. And life without him is April 13th on the Titanic. Second thing I want to consider this morning is the irony of life and death. To consider for a moment this context where he is telling them, I am the life. This is hours before he's about to be like this. Hours before he has his beard plucked out. Hours before the flesh is ripped from his back with a whip that has little shards of glass in it and shards of metal that rips it just from his whole back. Probably bone went with it. Hours before he is crushed to death in front of them. He says, I'm the life. It's just weird when you think about the context. And the people of God better take in the context and realize that he has prepared them for that. He's prepared us for this. He prepared them for that just a couple chapters earlier. In John 12, 24, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Thomas, who's asking me these questions, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's saying, I'm the life, and you're about to see it die, and it's going to bear much fruit. He's prepared them for this. Thomas, you're about to see the most gruesome death you've ever seen, but know that in death is life. The reason he can say that I am the life is because he's about to die the death that earns it. He's about to pay the price that satisfies a holy God. That's why he can claim to be the life it amazes me the irony of this moment is fitting with this contrary kingdom of God that's just so unlike the world where the first is last and the last is first this contrary kingdom where the Lord of the kingdom washes feet and this contrary kingdom where life comes from death this contrary kingdom is just weird it's weirdly ironic that in his death would come real Life, But guess what? The kingdom of God worked that way then and it works that way now. It works the same way now. I told you I was going to share with you a little bit more about Ronnie and Deborah and their story. 
Ronnie told me that in late September last year that his brother Tracy was diagnosed with cancer. And they buried him a month and a day later. Ronnie told me that he hadn't had a chance to see his brother much before then, but when he found out he was sick, he spent some time with his brother, and he recognized that his brother had something that he didn't have. Tracy's ultimate reality was not a doctor's report. And while the doctor's report was true, that was not his ultimate reality, but his ultimate reality was Christ as the way, Christ as the truth, Christ as the life. And while his body decayed at a cyclic rate, he was enjoying the Vanderbilt mansion of grace and hope. He was a visual aid of a passage that we read a few minutes ago. This passage, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die of cancer, yet shall he live. He's a visual aid. And his living death was a testimony to his family and friends who are now recently rescued from the Titanic. His living death, the way that he died. He died with a hope. And through that, his brother came to believe on Christ and now even his sister-in-law. That's the way the kingdom of God works. It's in our dying daily. It may be cancer. It may just be trying to be a good husband. As a husband loves his wife, as Christ loved the church, what did the husband do for his wife? He died. As the husband dies for his wife, he puts the gospel on display. As the believer fights with the world, kung fu kicks the world to not get all tangled up in it. Like a good soldier does not get carried, caught up in the affairs of the world or the civilian affairs, but sticks to the task of the commander. As we suffer about being true to what he's called us to be and to not just look like the rest of the world, we are suffering and dying like he did, just like this kingdom principle, this contrary kingdom, and we're putting the gospel on display. These things that so many of you are begging to be liberated from are the very thing that puts the gospel on display. That's why, like Brad said in these last few messages, it is a treat, it's a blessing that he's given you trial. You need those things, not just for your sake, but for the kingdom of God's sake. For Ronnie and Deborah Finley's sake. This thing that you're saying, God, take from me, please. It's the very thing that Jesus said, take this cup from me. But he said, not my will, but yours. Whatever these things are in your life that you're saying, man, take it from me. The irony is, in that thing, the gospel will be on display and he will reach others with your hope. The third thing, the briefest, the responsibility of the living, those who are in Christ, those who are living in the mansion of grace, to the dead, those who are on the Titanic. As the Father had life in himself and he gave it to the Son, as the Father sent the Son. And as the Son has given life to you, the Son sends you. So send I you. The charge for the living is to take this message to the dying. The charge and the privilege and the honor. We are stepping on the Titanic. 
When we step out and engage our families, it's unbelieving. When we engage our workmates and our neighbors, we're stepping foot on the deck of the Titanic and we're bearing the Vanderbilt name, if I can borrow that illustration. But we're knowing we're not going down with the ship. We're going to survive. And not only that, not only are we going to survive, but we will thrive and flourish in the mansion of grace. We're sharing an urgent message with people that recognize our dancing. <laughs> what do you mean, man? Don't bother me. I'm spinning my partner. I'm dosy doing. We're sharing a message with people that are tanning on the deck of the Titanic and are thinking, this thing will never sink. We're sharing a message with people that are dining on fine cuisine. They're marrying and laughing and tanning on the deck of a sinking ship. And most will say, buzz off. I'm enjoying my vacation. But some will say, what? Tell me more. Is something going to happen to this supposedly unsinkable thing? Some will say, tell me more about this ship. And then also tell me more about this mansion of grace that you now live in. Tell me more about this gracious, loving Lord who's adopted you. Tell me more about these adopted brothers and sisters that are on in that mansion with you. While most will say, buzz off, no thanks, some will say, I want to hear more. Just a couple of closing thoughts before we worship in song. We're going to respond with more than one song. I hope that's okay for you. I know kind of the norm is, hey, man, let's get our one song and then go about our day. But I think we need to respond in song more than that. Response to Christ being the life. I want you to know before we sing that, man, the reason that the reason I'm so urgent about this, I think the reason that we've taken our time crawling through this one statement, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, is because what he's saying is not just about life improvement. Faith is not just something that you put on to make life a little better. Just to kind of get things tidied up and taken care of. I mean, it's the difference between the Titanic and the Vanderbilt Mansion. It's the difference between no life and life. So this message is urgent. I hope and pray that some of y'all, man, I, knowing that we've had unbelievers, those who did not believe who were on the journey, potentially being drawn to Christ, who were walking with us before, I hope you heard the truth this morning. And I hope that maybe Tracy's story encouraged you. I hope that Christ's story encouraged you more than anything. I hope that we shouted to the deck of the Titanic this morning. And I hope that those in the mansion love the Lord of the mansion a little more. Let's respond in song.